it's true that you know a lot of people stay because of of money and monetary concerns that's absolutely valid but then in that situation i would you know implore people to not despair you can either despair and say you know i can't do anything or you can decide that okay you may not be able to transition tomorrow but if you continue to upskill and build your career capital you become a much more attractive prospect for any new company <laughs> So many of you will be looking to enter pharma as a career pathway. It's one of the common ones that doctors consider when they are looking to move from conventional medicine. And today's episode focuses on the culture in pharma. So we approached this conversation and I chose one of my good friends, Dr. John Dickham, who is a medical affairs manager at the global pharmaceutical company Astellas. So he is a writer, poet and doctor and he's also a proud alumna of the Yale School of Public Health and an Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Committee Chair with the Faculty of Pharmaceutical Medicine. So in this conversation we focus on defining culture. He gives us an overview of the common entry pathways that doctors can use to enter pharma, the push and pull factors from leaving our conventional jobs and moving into pharma, the foundations that you need to make the best decisions for your career move and to judge whether a company works for you or not, and also how to navigate those really challenging situations and discussions when you realize that the organization you're working for has a culture problem and how best to address that for this discussion but realistically this could be used in any sector and what I love about this particular discussion is that we go deep and it's one of our longest podcasts so far so what I would suggest is sit back relax, reflect, and let us know what you think. And as always, don't forget to subscribe and leave a positively glowing review for our podcast so this episode and the messages within it can reach as many doctors as possible. Thank you so much for your help. Let's face it. Burnout amongst doctors is sky high and we're actively seeking other ways to make the most of our transferable skills beyond the usual career pathways. Welcome to Disrupting Doctors' Careers. I'm your host, Dr. Abena Bubbers-Jones, and I'm on a mission to connect one million doctors across the world with the best in diverse career opportunities. Welcome, John, to Disrupting Doctors' Careers. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Abena. Thank you so much for inviting me to, to chat here. I'm honoured to, to chat with you. I've been following your work for a few years. Thank you so much. I mean, I think it's an honour to speak to you because we've kind of been in the same circles for quite some time. Without it was only until it. very recently we've actually started having some quite deep conversations around diverse alternative careers for doctors and you know the idea for this podcast came about as part of one of those conversations right 
and actually a really really hot topic which is not exclusive to doctors or doctors careers but we're using this as an opportunity to talk about it in the context of pharma in particular because that is what that's where you are at the moment that is your career so today's episode is what is the culture in pharma like for doctors so again a simple question but with with a lot of sub questions beneath that and so where should we start with this so actually let's let's start with pharma in general just to give doctors an oversight of what the entry points are for going into pharma so as I'm sure you're aware because you're one of these doctors um you know pharma is probably one of the most popular options for doctors when they think about alternative careers um it provides a breadth of opportunities um, not and beyond the clinical um, some you know you can go into training don't have to train and so could you just give us an overview of a why you chose pharma as a, a career pathway to segue into and b you know what what are the entry points that doctors can actually step into and get their feet wet yeah thanks so much Abena, for that preamble you're definitely on point that um you know the pharmaceutical industry is popular for doctors looking to to, um, to, to branch out of clinical medicine per se. Um, in terms of why I chose the pharmaceutical industry, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, I, I don't really like it when people say they fell into things, but in my case, it, it was a little bit like that. You know, I, I wanted to make a difference on a population level. I did um, have an interest in public health. So I did a master's in public health. Um, and then I was interested in where I could apply my skills, you know, I was interested in a field that would be at the nexus of clinical medicine, of making that population level, level difference, and also what I call corporate intelligence, or you know, um, making an impact at the, you know, um, utilizing the the strengths of the corporate world to make that population level difference. I did explore management consulting. I interviewed um, the BCG, got the final round. I wanted to interview here again, but again, I was put off by. You know how much time it would take, how time-consuming it could be. Uh-huh. Um, so, pharmaceutical industry made sense, and I worked in clinical trials for some time, and I'm now working in medical affairs for a pharmaceutical company. Now, in terms of the entry points for doctors, well, I'd say there are three types of pharmaceutical physicians, and there's a very nice um, BMA PDF on this actually. And so, the first is clinical research, which is the most obvious. That a lot of doctors enter if they're looking to enter the pharmaceutical industry. Is that like the kind of CRO roles you see coming up here and there? Yeah, SMO, CRO. So SMOs are strictly kind of delivering clinical trials on behalf of pharmaceutical companies, where CROs would act as that bridge between the pharmaceutical company and the SMO. Um, so CROs have a much wider scope of work, but clinical research does fall under that umbrella, absolutely. What does SMO stand for? Site Management Organization. Okay. And you have many in London, and obviously they're taking on more trials. They expand, and you become a, essentially become a clinical trial doctor. You start off as a sub investigator, then you start, you know, leading clinical trials, or being responsible for the delivery of clinical trials on behalf of a pharmaceutical company. So that's the first branch, if you will, or the first pillar for pharmaceutical physicians. The second one is pharmacovigilance. So mm-hmm. people, you know, pharmaceutical company will be looking at safety signals. So clinical trials are happening. You need to know when an adverse event occurs, when an adverse event of special interest occurs. There are various safety signals that tell us that, you know, we need to flag this up as a possible side effect if the drug goes to market. And so a pharmacovigilance physician or a safety physician sits usually in the pharmaceutical company 
and is responsible for assessing all the safety signals and working with the rest of the pharmaceutical um, um, departments, pharmaceutical um, company departments, to ensure that all these are addressed. And can we continue? Can we put this drug through to the next phase? And obviously, sometimes the drug may need to be dropped because there are problems with safety. And this, you know, this accounts. Their response, they they deal with. They understand why there's such a high attrition rate in pharmaceutical medicine. Seventy percent of drugs don't make it through from 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 pre pre you know, mm-hmm. preclinical pretrial phases to commercialization. And then the third pillar is medical affairs, and medical affairs is the um, department that serves as the bridge between research and development and commercialization of the drug. Um, and if you want to add a fourth pillar there, then that's kind of the commercial team. And some doctors do go into commercialization. Um, or into the commercial teams, particularly those who want to enter various senior leadership roles, the C-suite and so forth. Um, so are those entry points? Yeah, those are entry points, but um, you do need to have had in the UK at least four years to enter, a, you know, generally speaking, to enter a pharmaceutical pathway, if you will. But some doctors have entered earlier and forged their own way. So it's not as simple. So you're talking as- about four years post-grad, is that what you mean? Four years post-graduation, yeah. Normally they ask for at least, especially if you want to enter do the pharmaceutical medicine training program, they ask for at least four years of clinical experience before you can enroll. Mm-hmm. But ironically, you don't actually need to have had four years clinical experience. I know people who've entered medical affairs, for example, with two years experience and done very well for themselves. Mm-hmm. So I would say that actually having clinical experience would work to your advantage because you know, the earlier you enter and if you fail to develop, you know, um, career capital, then later down the line, you might find that you reach a plateau much quicker and you're not able to compete with your peers. Tell us a bit more about what career capital means. <laughs> I love that. I've, I didn't even think I actually heard that term before. Career capital. Sexy. Maybe this is, this is, just, me, <laughs> this is just me talking to myself. Oh, that gosh. kind of inadvertently slipped out. Yeah, go on then. Enlighten us. Enlighten us. I've let it slip. (laughs) The way I think of career capital is really, you know, um, the fuel that you need to advance yourself in your career. So it's important Uh to have a roadmap. Um, And, you know, I'm here right now. I plan to be here in 10, 15 years time. Uh What toolkit do I need to acquire? What competencies and skill sets do I need to acquire to be able to help me achieve that? And that happens, you accumulate certain competencies, you accumulate certain skill sets. And that's what your CV is about. Your CV is just a, you know, a written, documented version of your career capital, of your value proposition. So career capital is just the fuel that you need to get where you want to be in terms of your career. Sounds very American, I sound very cheesy, but it interesting. Helps. Very, very kind of it helps me to think about why I'm doing what I'm doing, because part yeah. of it is service. Yeah. Obviously service to, to the population that I you know that I that I intend to help um and then obviously another part of it is service to my own life mm-hmm. and so sometimes you think oh man like can I change the world like can I really help a billion people or whatever and then you think no John that's part of why you're doing what you're doing part of it is to serve the world part of it is also to help yourself because I can only mm-hmm. help I can only be as helpful to the world as I am to myself so then you know, Simon Sinek, I know, you know, God, it is, you know, I, I know we'll not talk everyone. talk about that shortly. <laughs> right. But um, he says, begin with why. And it's true, right? It's like, I'm tired. I'm fed up, right? In the best job you'll get that. It's like, but then why am I doing this? 
oh yeah, part of it's to help the world, part of it's also to make sure that I remain healthy and I help my family, et cetera. So the idea of career capital really helps me to focus. Okay, fine. What's my why? What's my roadmap? Am I follow, am, am I on track? And then it makes it much easier to gauge where you're good, what you're doing, when, why. So it's kind of a kind of an objective way, an empirical, you know, an empirical way of guiding your career. That's what the medics say. Empirical treatment. I gave treatment empirically while you I guide your career empirically. Oh, you haven't heard them say it all the time, right? I gave treatment empirically. Gave you know, antibiotics empirically. While I mean, they, yeah, I know the word empirical, but I haven't heard it in that context. Yeah, I mean, medics say it all the time. They say it Do all they? the time. And so I used to say just to sound like really like, yeah. Really? You can't give empirically. Really? <laughs> I sound really clever now. I'm such a clever medic. <laughs> okay. Moving on. <laughs> no, but seriously, though, I really, what I've really kind of written down, which I might use, I'll definitely quote you, is serve the world and serving yourself. Yeah. Uh, those are really two important things that can also, for doctors, be quite conflicting, right? Because, as you know, as ca- essentially caregivers, I mean, I can personally speak for myself. I do chat, I do struggle with balancing, you know, doing what I do for doctors, doing what I do in occupational health with making sure I don't burn out again, which I did a few years back. And I don't want to do it again because it was not a great place to be. And just generally managing my own health it is really hard. And we know that doctors in particular tend to be pretty bad at doing that for themselves. Um but that point in itself will then move on towards our culture discussion, uh, focusing on pharma. But let's just look at culture in general, because a lot of doctors choose to move out of conventional practice because they have well-being priorities. So they get to a point where they're like, actually, I want to serve myself and my well-being more than the job that I'm doing or the people that I'm serving in this role. As we know, burnout, stress, you name it, is quite common. This is just one of the push factors, but it's, it's one of the common ones that we see. And so what they're also saying when they walk with their, when they walk with their feet is that the organisations are not providing an environment or platform for them to thrive continue to be well, be able to live their lives as they see fit and maybe contributing towards a detriment in their health in some degree. And again, that's quite complex. I'm not going to go into that now. And so in making choices as to where to move to, because a lot of doctors really struggle because there's like so many options and they don't know where to start. um, It's really important that they are aware of some of the factors that pushed them in that direction in the first place and how to actually identify any issues that come up again, which aren't unique to where they were working before, but may occur in other organisations. Hence why this culture discussion. So going to the definition of culture. So when just before this podcast, you sent me a link to, was it Rec? on the definition of culture. But I'm really keen to hear more from you about how would you define culture to a three-year-old in the workplace? Yeah, how do you um, yeah first of all, you know, I think the points that you raise are, are all valid. I think 
the the, the reality in those points is, is quite sad and um part of that also has to do definitely has to do with our personalities you know we're caregivers mm-hmm. and um I don't think that's something that's ever going to go away you know I still kind of have this is why I have a roadmap this is why I have that kind of empirical way of dealing with my career because I need to check in and remind myself John are you still on track to remaining healthy now to your question about how would I define culture to a three-year-old I had to think about this the reason that kind of quote came up that I screenshotted and sent to you uh-huh. so I was going through it and then you see all these kind of complex definitions you know the attitudes and attributes and behaviors that contribute blah 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 and on that was simple I was like this is it it was like the personality and character of an organization boom right like and the my word for it is the ambience right so three-year-old uncle there John, no ambiences What's that? I don't know what ambiance is, really. No, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word ambiance, right, <laughs> to, to a child, right, unless they're like a genius. But um, if they would say, you know, Uncle John, what's culture of a company? I'd probably take them to the kitchen, you know, to, to a restaurant, a kitchen, you know, um, a restaurant, sorry. And I'd say, how does this feel? And they'd say, oh, it feels really warm and it feels really fuzzy, you know. And then I'd take them to another one and I'd, you know, where people are like, it's a bit, just a bit dreary. I'd say, how does this feel? They go, oh, this feels different. It's not, it's not as nice in here. Then I'd take them somewhere else. I'd say, that's what culture is. So the truth is that culture is amorphous. I think we're trying to, we're trying to define it. And you said before, you know, before you started recording, you said each person has their own definition of what culture means. And I think when you have a discussion, we all know that it means how things feel and you know, I wish I could be academic about this, but let's just get down to the nitty gritty of the truth of it, which is how things feel when you're yeah. working, how you so feel, specific. how people make you feel. Yeah. And that's that's it. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I, it's just how, how, how we're talking about it in the context of work, how a workplace makes you feel. You know, before yeah, you so come I to say work, personality, at work. character, yeah. because it's not just how the work to me again it's not to me by the way it's not just how the workplace makes you feel because I'm not so important that the culture should define itself around my feelings right but then taken to the extreme that mindset then leads to he should be lucky to have a job it's about how we all make each other feel and how we all bring the aspects of our personality that contribute to the best feeling possible so we all have traits that are not suitable in any given environment and that might be the fact that you know what like um if I'm not leading a team discussion or a workshop me doing that and disrupting the flow of the actual leader may cause some discontent so it's not just about how it makes me feel it's about how I contribute to that as well and that's important as well because the point I was going to get to when you were saying about a lot of medics say well I need to focus on what makes me happy now. Mm-hmm. What I always say to people in that situation is, you know, I'm fed up of the NHS. I need to leave. And that's a push factor. They're talking about push factors here, mm-hmm. right? And a great recruiter said this to me. He said, John, people, you know, you've got to focus on pull factors. And this is why I didn't say what's in it for me and then what's in it for the population that I serve. I said, how can I contribute? And then what do I get in return? Uh-huh, so uh-huh. the thing is, the companies that have successful cultures or make you feel good and make other people feel good are generally quite competitive to get into, which means that you have to demonstrate enough career capital 
enough, a strong enough value proposition. You have to be able to demonstrate what you can give to the company. Only when you can demonstrate what's in it for the organization can you then start having a conversation about what's in it for me. I mean, I think you make some really valid and important points there for all our listeners, regardless of whether you're a doctor or not, to really reflect on. And I totally agree with you on all accounts, um, especially when you know you get to the point where you are having conversations with organisations as to you know when I say it's, it's like you're you know you're on a date you know <laughs> it's a two way street it is, right it, it takes two it to tango same it's the same well, um it is the same kind yeah, of yeah it's like what have you on. both got to offer the other par- party in this partnership which is hopefully long term moving forward and yes. With, when doctors are driven to look at other opportunities, I mean, yes, you've got the push factors, but the pull factors to that organization should be stronger than the push factors yeah, because absolutely. that is where the problems start to arise, absolutely. right? And so if we're moving on to, I mean, let's talk about you in your current organization because you're currently working for Estellas or even just your experience working with other pharma companies. What were the main, let's say, pull factors for you when you made decisions to work with these companies? Were these conscious choices of, you know, oh, that company sounds like it's got great workplace culture, or is it the salary's good, it's pharma, I'm going? Like, and how has that changed? You know what I mean? That's what we're at the beginning. How has that changed as you've gotten older? Because our perspective has changed. I mean, I, I can say definitely my perspective has changed when it comes to who I choose to be working with. And it isn't as basic as it has been in the past. Let's put it that way. Um, but I'd love, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. No, really, really good question. So, yes, I work for Estellas. This is my, the first pharmaceutical company I've worked for. I've been here about a month and a half now. It's fantastic. Um, great people, great team, great culture, great feel. Um, and a lot of autonomy as well. So um, it's, it's great in that sense. Before this, I worked in SMOs, in clinical trial companies. They were startups and um, they provided me with the cultural capital that was required. And so I've learned a tremendous amount there. Various challenges, lots of good moments, lots of good learnings. Um, so grateful to have, been, to have done that. And before that, I did my master in public health. I was at Yale and then I did seven years in the NHS. Um, so to get more precise about in, in answering your question, you said what were the pull factors and was I strategic in how I approached that? In how yeah, I was it, what, was it how conscious it? was it when you were making those decisions? Yeah, absolutely. So day, I was very fortunate. People, I was gonna say for a lot of people, a lot of doctors, they're yeah. just grateful to be given a job that's not the job they were at. Yeah. So again, like motivated by the push factors, but I'd love to hear more based on your yeah, experience. Yeah, I mean. I've been incredibly strategic about how I've positioned myself and I see it as a bit of a chess game. So when I went to Yale, I, I, I saw it as a very useful um, data point, a very useful tool for my arsenal, my career arsenal, which is why I went over. And it's actually becoming more valuable the older I get, the more people I meet, even outside of work. And the relationships built to other relationships. Oh, this guy I've been to Yale. Okay, I'm going to introduce him to this person who happens to know someone that's here linked to my career bizarre right but I remember when I was finishing off in the states I got in touch with a recruiter and we had a long chat and you know just to move off you know, the, the, the kind of point of my career um just to say this I think is very important is that it's really important for people to build 
good relationships with recruiters because recruiters are the bridge, especially in this industry. And recruiters become friends, usually become friends with the people that they help to get up the career ladder. Some of them know each other's spouses. They probably go to each other's weddings. They they drink beer. I know I've had dinner and lunches and drinks with recruiters because they're people and they're nice and then we're collaborators. Um, so I spoke these with are, these are specialist recruiters who specialize in a particular area and like yeah, like the specialist in medical affairs, or specialize in pharmacovigilance, or the specialist. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. um, you know, they're, they're the gatekeepers without doubt. Um, and if they don't get a good vibe from you and you're telling them that you hate the NHS and you hate life and all you have to say is that you don't like where you are, they're not going to put you in front of a hiring manager. Um, but, um, you know, in terms of strategy, so this recruiter asked me about, you know, my personality type. He kind of got a sense of who I was. And then he wanted to make sure that I'd done my homework with Farm, which I had. And then he said, um, OK, fine. You know, I actually wanted to do medical affairs to begin with. But my CV, I don't think I'd set it out in the right way and so he said okay john clinical research could be something that you could use to eventually then segue into into medical affairs i realized how competitive it was and it wasn't going to happen right away but actually i've been actively trying to get into medical affairs for the past couple of years and this is something i want to pass across as well as people who are listening is that you know it can take a long time and we medics aren't used to being rejected my first rejection, if you will, we've all been rejected. My first job rejection, when I've tried really hard and failed, was in, in my th- at 31 years old. That's not normal. That shouldn't be happening. And um, I, I was devastated. It was final round at BCG in Boston. And um, yeah, it was just a very cliche, but I didn't get it. And I was down and out emotionally for two, three months. Um, I think medics, the earlier you learn, we learn to fail, I think the better, because transition, the tough, as you know, so everything that I've done over the past two years has been with a view to get into medical affairs in pharma. So any activity which I've engaged to improve my communication skills, to improve my presentation, to improve my public speaking, to learn leadership, everything has been a tactic towards getting here. And the more I failed and the more I've reflected, the better I've become at presenting myself. Of course, I have thoughts of, I don't want to be here. I didn't want to be in the NHS. But actually, when I'm speaking to a hiring manager, I put my, I try as much as possible to put my best foot forward. Um, So I I began by being driven by push factors, but I converted that into being motivated by pull factors. And I'm still doing that, still doing that consciously. So while I f- fell into it, I fell into it because the opportunity presented itself. But when the opportunity presented itself, I was ready. I know there's a whole American there's Americanism, which is, um, you know, success is luck and preparation, right? But it's like, yeah, opportunities present themselves. You have the career capital to be able to seize that opportunity and make it work up to your advantage. I, I really appreciate that narrative. And it sounds like you really went through a lot um and I'm really sorry that BCG didn't work out in Boston oh it's okay um, it's okay yeah yeah well here you are now you know doing, no, I don't doing feel I don't feel well. bad about it I don't feel bad um, about it it was wonderful and um wonderful opportunity I mean I was I got yeah. to final round at like one of the greatest companies in the world met some amazing people really inspiring people um yeah. I I was asked to apply to the in the UK when I spoke to a recruiter later on 
I just thought, by that time, I thought, you know, 80 hours a week and newly married and um, no. So it was, I think it was, you know, at this stage, Abena, in my life, right? And you said, how has it changed? I'm getting older. Yeah. Um, I kind of see these, you know, just, I think it was Steve Jobs who said, you can only connect the dots in retrospect. And I'm where I'm supposed to be. I've extracted the lessons that I needed to. And yeah, I don't yeah. sit here crying and go, I wish I'd gone to BCG. I go, that was valuable. That was really useful experience. Yeah. And, it, you know, the, whatever lesson I got from that has helped me to get here. And I think the next part of your question was about, like, how have my motivations changed over time? Yeah, it, you know, it, it is a combination of wanting to contribute, wanting to have sufficient income to be able to live the life that I want. My mindset now is that you need something bigger than you. So even when I think about myself, it's not so much about myself. You know, my wife and I talk about this a lot. And I say to her, look, living for me alone is pretty easy, right? Like, you don't need much money if you're single. Well, as long as you're not like, you know, a, a, a spendthrift, right? A, spend, a spendthrift, what is it? Is it a spendthrift? Um, as long as you're not someone who spends without, you know, real consideration, it's not hard to live for yourself. But for me, it's like the us and I live more for the us now. And I'm not a parent yet, but I think a lot of people who are parents would be able to resonate with this, which is if I can't live, if I can't be selfish for me alone, if I can't think I need to take a break for me alone, then let me at least think I need to take a break so I can be present with my wife. Mm-hmm. I can be present with my friends. And for those who have children, so I can be present with my children. Mm-hmm. So it's evolving in the sense that I'm seeing it less about work-life balance, but more about living a life that is aligned with my values that is mm-hmm. meaningful, that makes me feel full. Mm-hmm. And much, I think a lot more about, you know, what do I want, what legacy for myself, not what will I be remembered for? Mm-hmm. What do I want to remember myself for? Yeah. So I look back and I go, John, what do you think of the John of th- a year ago? That guy's a bit of a hustler, man. He didn't give up. I mean, he's got a few growth areas here and there, but you know what? You know what I mean? I want to look back and be proud of who I am. And every action now is a tactic towards that end. Yeah. I hope that isn't too cheesy, but it really no, helps no. me to like during the more painful moments, help me to think you're on the path, John, just keep going. Sure. And I think, you know, everything you've mentioned is really valuable as a found foundation, but yeah, you need a solid foundation to be moving careers and to recognize issues when they present themselves. Um, unfortunately, some of the, the most common ways of learning about these issues is to have experienced it yourself and gone through some really emotional challenges. But if we just segue back to farm-owned organisations and some of the some of the culture challenges, so I mean, do you remember exactly why why this question actually came up? Because we we, we were having, I think, a, ge- a general discussion um, about some of the disparities between different farm pharmaceutical organisations how some seem to be doing really well in supporting their staff in particular, not just doctors, but their staff, and how others seem to be doing shockingly badly. Um, so based on your experience, what, what are some of the challenges that pharma companies face at the moment, which I think is probably historical and based on legacy? I mean, you, you mentioned earlier about BCG and 80-hour weeks. I'm sure BCG is probably not that bad, as bad these days. I know that a lot of the consulting firms in particular have change the way uh people work because they attract better people that way etc cetera, etc cetera. that's that's what the market is demanding that's that's what they're offering but going back to pharma it seems like in some cases they are struggling from a cultural perspective why is that what are the issues that you've noticed 
Yeah, Ben, thank you for that. You know, um, I'll just come and say that, you know, um, my my experience, and I know you like when I mentioned how limited my experience in the industry is, it is. So I'm just saying this from a place of coming Based from Based on your experience. There were any stats. Just, you know, I'm saying it in experience, but also you are not an island. You know, quite a lot of doctors and a lot of people who have worked in pharma so you know a lot a lot of the decisions we make is also based on hearsay that's just the reality of life um and actually it, even in medic footprints we also judge companies based on what doctors have told us about those companies so don't underestimate the value of you know referrals yeah. validation i mean that's what social media is based on so yeah i'd love to hear your thoughts yeah sure no problem at all um again you know I'm sharing one man's perspective and then also the experience of my friends and colleagues. But um, this is a very small subset of the industry of people in the industry. So I'm also continuing to learn. Mm-hmm. And my views may the views that I share now may evolve as I as as, as I evolve. Um, but I worked in SMOs, um, startups, and obviously I, I'm now in the pharma proper, in in the farm in working for a pharmaceutical company. And I do hear that some companies have challenges occasionally. Um, I hear that when companies are going through transition, when they're going through growth, they have challenges, pinch points. Um, and those are usually temporary in the big pharma companies. I hear that sometimes you can have chaos in teams. So when people speak of big pharma companies, you rarely hear them say, from what I've heard anyway, you rarely hear say, that company's really bad. They'll say, oh, yeah, that particular team is going through a bit of chaos at the moment and the company's working to adjust it. The big companies have the resources. To, to obviously address these issues. And the thing is, a toxic culture causes profit loss, right? Bad for because business. It's bad for it's business. Bad for business. People who aren't <laughs> happy. Is money with these companies, and it's bad. So, it yeah. is bad. I mean, there's absenteeism, presenteeism, absenteeism, all these fancy, you know, words um, that just mean people have checked out. Um, and that happens. Now, what I've seen in the smaller organizations is that they there may not be an awareness actually or at least there may not be a a, a a history of having to deal with these problems big companies have dealt with them along their journey so they know that this happened five years ago this happened 10 years ago this work this work this works they have a repository of tools to address this and they have the resources to bring consultants in as needed the smaller companies do not have that necessarily and they have to rely on a very small pool of, of usually stretched leadership. And what happens is that actually the different outcomes that you see are the result of how leadership is able to cope during those pinch points. And it comes down to awareness, I think, but then awareness and experience. So it's not always the fault of the organization. I think a lot of the time is that actually, as you all know, there's a learning curve in leadership. And if you're working in a startup, a lot of the time, the leadership may be on their own learning curve and I'm speaking for myself as well I've been through a particular learning curve I've you know made my errors made my mistakes I'm still continuing to learn so the challenges are uh you know they haven't got a repository the structures aren't in place the finances aren't in place to be able to fix the issues and also um lack of experience perhaps and and or awareness on the part of leadership the personality of the organization is the result of whatever leadership permit to be acceptable and i know a lot of leadership doesn't want to hear this and say well actually everyone contributes like no and um, people emulate leadership leadership set the tone for what's acceptable and for what isn't so um the truth is that it requires um strong leadership and yeah of course once in a while you'll get like gundies and 
you know, Martin Luther Kings who appear to have it naturally. But what I'm seeing here in Big Pharma and I'm seeing, you know, for different companies is that they take leadership development very seriously. They don't assume that everyone's an MLK, right? Um, so that's it as well. Martin Luther King, sorry. Mm-hmm. Right, they just they just assume like let's let's big let's assume that everyone needs leadership training, and that's taken very seriously. So, um, leadership training is not just something that you do when things go wrong; something that you begin to instill in leaders from the get go, because it is a competent leadership is a competency. Mm. There are toolkits to it. So, just going going back to culture, I mean, there's quite a lot of things. Leadership being one of them that that contributes towards culture. And um, again, like you sent me some really useful stuff recently. Another thing you mentioned, Simon Sinek does not need any introduction. Um, he was featuring on the Diary of a C- CEO. It's another podcast that I'm sure loads of people would have listened to at some point, um, which is hosted by Steve Bartlett. And they were talking about culture in one of the latest episodes. And for my memory from this morning when I was making my breakfast, is that when he mentioned culture, I was talking about, you know, focusing on the whole working from home, the big resignation, um, getting people back into the office, pool tables, all of that stuff that makes you feel whatever to try and um, entice people back into an environment where they get to gel and be friends with each other and all of that stuff. Like, so I guess my question is, you know, what, what actually makes culture is it the tangible things you could see in the office and the paint on the walls is it how people just treat each other um I'm sure leadership is a part of that another thing that we haven't really overtly discussed so far is the diversity of thought are people permitted to speak their minds and challenge authorities is there a a representative workforce in the organization where you feel like being different is not such a bad thing or being part of a minority group is, is not going to be a detriment to your p- career progression, as you know, most people have felt for most of their entire lives. <laughs> so, you know, when, again, like going back to the pull factors and being more specific on, on some of those factors, we mentioned leadership, like what, what is it in organisations like Pharma? Yeah, you know, Simon. Like, if you if you literally had a list in your own mind, where you kind of do a tick box, can you list a few things yeah. that you're like, this these kind of factors make up the culture, where I can then assess whether it works for me or not. Yeah, I just want to say again, this is you know me coming from a place of um, still learning. So again, um, you know, people who are listening, I just want you to know that there's um, you know, this is one man's opinion, and these will evolve. So um, there'll be some of people who are listening who. Who will have much more experience actually in leadership and culture than I than I do. So again, I'm coming from a place of still someone who's still learning. Um, now, Simon Sinek did address this actually with Stephen Bartlett. He said to Stephen Bartlett, "Look, your our previous company had all these fancy things, but people left when the pandemic hit because actually the other companies were had m- much more attractive offerings." And he said, "What you missed was your why, your sense of meaning. So you can have all the pool tables and everything fancy, but you know what? If you don't, if people don't come in with a sense of meaning, if there's if you don't live by the values that you have on your website, then and you don't remind the company, people in the company of it, they'll soon lose sight of why they're doing what they're doing. And I think I do believe that humans are, you know, Victor Frankl spoke about this. We, 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 we thrive on meaning. And actually, if anything, mm-hmm. we overcome obstacles when we have a meaning, when we have a raison d'etre. 
Um, in terms of the things that actually make contribute to a positive culture, obviously meaning I think is the topmost thing, but it's not as, you know, these companies don't just kind of say, oh yeah, if everyone's diverse, like if no one feels like they're the only black person in the room, you know, they're going to feel happy culture. I mean, do you know what? If I'm being treated right, I'm the only black person in the room and people are respectful of me and I feel good. I can still be happy. But if I'm in a room full of different ethnicities and we're each other's throats all the time, I'm going to be miserable. Right. So it's, it's, it's multivariate, isn't it? And the way they approach this isn't isn't just kind of let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya. There's a strategy pyramid with which they begin. So they begin with the values. The values then cascade down to a set of overarching objectives, which then cascade down to, you know, sp you know, um, specific objectives for each domain. And then that then becomes tactics. So if you have a value of, you know, at this company, and this is the sign of sinners, at this company, we we have integrity. But then at the tactical level, people are telling white lies or aren't being skillful in the way they're telling the truth. Then you're not living, then that needs to be addressed. Mm -hmm. So if now you have a value of we are an organization that have diversity of thought, that will then translate into the tactic of we get people from many different disciplines and many different domains. Do you see how you see what I mean? So actually, yeah. you know, you can actually be empirical and objective and strategic in the way that you translate values and culture, which are amorphous and, you know, flowery into tangible actions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So to answer the question, what things contribute to a culture it depends it begins on the values of the leadership guided by managers that are aware enough to be able to skillfully ensure that the behaviors on the ground align with the values of said organization mm, i totally agree and what why has this been an issue in pharma in particular well again um i can't speak for the whole industry and the reason I'm speaking so generally is because it doesn't just, I don't think it just applies to this industry. I think it applies to all industries. I hope you're happy with me answering it with like, just generally, while I yeah, think it's yeah. been a problem. Farmers a sector. Farmers <laughs> a sector, right, exactly. It's one yeah. sector of, of, of which there are many. And I do think it boils down to awareness and awareness of the self. So for example, if, one of our values is integrity and I'm cornered, my report is cornered, my line manager is cornered and, you know, we the, the, the deadline is tomorrow and we're not going to reach this deadline, we need one more week. Now, if under that pressure, I buckle, I lose my self-awareness and I say, oh, we weren't able to do it because something else happened, right? Rather than say, hey, listen, we'll push for time, we had too much going on, we'll need an extra week. Mm -hmm. then my lack of awareness in that moment will then trickle down to everyone else. My reports, if my line manager condones it, then what happens is there's a reinforcement. So it's a problem because lack of awareness leads to certain actions, which are then reinforced. So it's like an operant mm -hmm. condition that's occurring. Mm -hmm. Whereas actually, so that can lead to a downward spiral. Or mm -hmm. you can have an operant conditioning that leads to a virtuous cycle. But mm -hmm. operant conditioning begins at the level of leadership. Mm -hmm. Leadership having an awareness and realizing that actually I want to, I want to, I want to condition Maslow's dog to do this. 
rather than this. Mm. Um, so I, I, I don't, you know, maybe it's not appropriate for me to say that it rests on the shoulders of leadership to recondition themselves, to be able to abide and live and to be able to embody the values. But yeah. it really does. It really, really does. And, you know, I would never put myself in a leadership position from which I'm not ready because I know that the impact on the organization, the people I serve could be so detrimental if I'm not ready. Mm-hmm. And once leadership has that awareness, it will no longer, you know, if you've heard of the Peter principle, most people are promoted to the level at which they're incompetent. That's why it happens. Without self-awareness, you mm-hmm. promote yourself to a level of in- where you're incompetent. You can be incompetent technically, that's fine. That can be addressed much more easily. When you're incompetent on a kind of relational level, that can be extremely destructive. Mm. I, I, have I answered your question or I addressed it? Yeah, I mean, I think you've raised quite a few important, again, points like around that. I mean, there is no right answer to this. <laughs> so it's actually really great to hear some of your perspectives on that. And, and I think particularly from the awareness point of view, I think there are a lot of companies or even people who are unaware of that problem. And the question is, how do we move them from being problem unaware to problem aware? And, and what can be done to help that process? Because once you're aware of a problem, you you would hope that someone wants to actually then address and tackle that problem in a meaningful way. Not everyone does, but you know, yeah, you'd I mean, hope you you know, you'd hope to get into the so so I mean what one of the I think challenges, and again, this is Simon Sinek referred to it, you know, and one one of the problems we have in society as a whole is that we haven't been given the tools to have meaningful conversations or difficult conversations more specifically especially around issues like this um which do feel uncomfortable and aren't easy to navigate but can lead to transformational outcomes for the many so you know we've got a few minutes left so I'd love to hear your thoughts on what what kind of things can be done within organizations particularly big ones uh, again, we're referring to Farmer in this conversation um, to address some of the culture issues, some practical on the ground things beyond beyond the kind of, you know, high level strategy work. And yeah, you know, talked mean, about a few things, but could you just outline a few other things that you think yeah. could be useful? And what doctors say, for example, you've got a doctor working in a farmer organization. Oh, you've got a few doctors in there like, you know, we, we can see that there is a problem here with the culture and we want to really support leadership in making a change, making a positive change. How do they go about tackling that? Or even, in, you know, initiating a discussion, I should say. Yeah, there's a couple of questions there. I mean, you said we, what can be done, first of all, to encourage um, leadership to kind of pursue a path of better culture. I'd say um, what I've seen work is really is having a, a, a framework that is intolerant not so intolerant that it has you know gives you zero chances to improve but is intolerant of repetitive lapses in good behavior because you all have lapses in in awareness right we're human but um there should be iterative improvement but the companies that i've seen appear to have good culture um have a very low threshold for repeated bad behavior for accepting repeated bad behavior and you know they have behavioral operating procedures you know what's acceptable what isn't um and that's very clear so people generally learn that actually bad behavior has consequences and also um just getting people on board who have the self or are willing to introspect enough 
um, to to positively change. And that's a personality thing, isn't it? I think you know there are various personalities, and um, just some people are just not just having a zero interest in that in other human beings, the welfare of other human beings. Um, so for an, org- an organization has to recognize those people and have an equally low tolerance for, for you know, accepting perpetual or continued bad behavior. Um, now, for an individual who wants to change culture in an organization, I'd say it depends on where they are. And I'd say in this industry in particular, I'd say you have to have these conversations very carefully because um, you know, a lot of us in medicine have an activist streak. You know, we're kind of, yeah, we're going to use the BM, we're going to fight the war, we're going to fight the good fight. But um, ultimately, the way you approach these things can affect your future mm-hmm. and can affect how you're perceived in how you solve problems. And it's very important that, you know, if someone wants to raise a problem in relation to culture, you don't just send a heated email to your CEO with all manner of expletives in it. I'm not saying that people will do that, but it has been done, right? People can do that under duress when they feel like they're under duress. Um, would I say it's wise for somebody to approach their line manager or their boss and say, culture here sucks, you need to sort it? No, <laughs> I wouldn't say it's wise. I'd say it's probably better to get the counsel of your friends, probably get the BMA on board quietly in the background and say, listen, there's a tough situation here. I'm not sure how to handle it. How do you think I can address it with, an, with a view to having an am, as, as amicable a resolution as is possible and be guided in that way? Because any action you take, I mean, you can be very quietly blacklisted from, a, from an organization without even knowing if that's happened. Because in this industry in particular, people know each other. It's mm-hmm. extremely small. And in, in other industries like finance and so on, like certain like hedge funds, for example, or VC healthcare is very small. So um, I would say, um, you know, a different skill set is required to navigate this. And a lot of the time people will see a bad culture quietly and try and change it and move. And people might say, well, isn't there um, a place for the, the good fight? And as I get older, I realize, yeah, there's a place for the good fight. But like, I'm going to have that good fight in a random debate on Facebook rather than with my line manager or my future boss. Um, because the more senior you get and the more you've put into the workforce, the more is at stake. So I'd say a lot, you know, nav- navigate the situation carefully, get counsel on how to address it. And once you've exhausted all those options and nothing's budging, sometimes it's just best to just up and leave and just find fairer waters. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I'm yeah. prob- you're probably the same. The older you get, you're like, I don't want, I don't yeah. want drama, unnecessary drama. I think leaving is very challenging for a lot of people in, in any company, especially even if culture is, is pretty toxic. Um, just it's to do with self-compassion, though, isn't it? Self-compassion, but at the end of the day, it's about money. It's about paying the bills. It's about reputation. It's it's a lot of things that we don't necessarily... You know, if it was like, oh, you know, I'm going because of my own well-being, you'd hope that was a priority for most people and, and they can walk away without any consequences. But for most people, especially now... Um, when things are just really, really pricey, the cost of living is huge, comparatively huge. It's quite difficult to walk away from a really good paying job, which has a, you know, and actually a lot of, a lot of these types, say these type of companies, but well-paying jobs, the sacrifice was that you didn't really have a life. Do you know what I mean? And if you walk away from that job, that you know, there goes your, your high paying salary, you know, so it's, it's, um, we, we, we've talked about a whole lot of things in this uh, podcast 
and can I just talk um, about that little point actually yeah. that that point can I just come off the back of that I'd say um it's true that you know a lot of people stay because of of money and monetary concerns that's absolutely valid but then in that situation I would you know implore people to not despair you can either despair and say you know I can't do anything or you can decide that okay you may not be able to transition tomorrow but if you continue to upskill and build your career capital you become a much more attractive prospect for any new company so there are two ways of seeing that problem you know i i wasn't where i wanted to be for 2 years in terms of i didn't want to be in smos you know if i could have gone straight to big pharma i would have done but i i did it didn't happen but then i made the choice that i could either if i had stayed in that mindset of oh my god it's so horrible woe is me i will never nothing that, that i can do and i'm saying those are entirely valid feelings but if i had stayed there then i wouldn't have taken the steps necessary to make myself a more attractive prospect so i would say to people continue to upskill upskill in a direction that will get you where you want to be and just understand that it will be tough for a while but i say to persevere because ultimately it will be worth it things won't be like this forever if you're open to insights from people you're open to advice you're open to all the stuff that you're sharing on your website abena do you know I mean it changes lives and i'd say just be patient with the application of this and it's not always a case of you have to be an indentured servant to have a reasonable way of living it's not all that's not always true i'm certainly not an indentured servant now and my friends in medical affairs aren't indentured servants so you know things can be better i'm just sharing this so that people know that actually what's happening in your head here about how horrible the capitalist world is and it will never be better and you're always going to be like this in this place isn't always true i've been there and i know that actually just feel the feelings but keep mm-hmm. on moving forward please just keep on moving forward well we have to um end the podcast right there and it's a really great place to end thank you so much john for this in-depth meaty reflective conversation on some really important points that just don't ever get discussed and I'm sure that you know the community of doctors will find your thought leadership in this conversation hugely hugely <laughs> valuable for their career plan so I'm a cynic you. you ain't got anything on I me <laughs> we've mentioned him too many times on this podcast uh let's <laughs> mention him again uh you know <laughs> we all have our own opinions here but uh, thanks again, John, and uh, I'm sure we'll see you again very soon. Thank you so much, Ravina. I really appreciate it. It's been an honour. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. So I genuinely hope that you appreciated some of the content in that podcast and you can use that for your career decisions moving forward. If you are working for a company that you love that has a great culture at medic footprints we are looking to connect one million doctors with the best companies that offer the best culture for doctors so please if you would recommend your company send me a line at team at medicfootprints.org we want to hear from you we want to hear about your company and we would love to work together until next time